Welcome to episode 537 with my guest, Glenn Meehan. I'm Paul Gilmartin. I don't know why I said my name that way. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, it's a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. More like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, check out our website, mentalpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at uh, mentalpod. I want to read a survey. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself fake friend. And she writes, how have you approached difficult friendships with people in active addiction? I've been in recovery from alcohol and drugs for five years. Unlike a lot of people in recovery, I didn't lose any of my friends in the process. In fact, my friends were supportive during the early part of my recovery. They became less supportive as time went on, but they still reach out to catch up occasionally. Um, I find it increasingly difficult to maintain a relationship with some of these friends while their active addiction to drugs and alcohol gets worse. One friend in particular is struggling with booze and Xanax and flip-flops over whether or not to get help. When she mentions wanting to quit, I try to use the moment as my way in to support that effort, but she quickly gets angry if I agree with her and acknowledge her addiction, offer to help find her treatment, or mention my own struggles. I want to be there for my friends since they were once there for me when I hit rock bottom, but I don't know if waiting for them to get help is in my best interest or theirs. I'm curious to get your perspective in history. What a great, great question. And there are support groups around this very issue. And a lot of them, a lot of those issues have nothing to do with the person who is an active addiction. It's about us not practicing self-care, us being people pleasers, not setting boundaries, trying to control other people, trying to save them, trying to get them to like us or at least not hate us. You know, I always joke that my goal in life is to die with the fewest number of people mad at me. Um, so I, I relate to that. And uh, I have gotten much, much better at setting boundaries with people that uh, are in active addiction because honestly they're they're not fun to be around. Uh, they're generally not honest and it's always all about them. Whether they're saying they're the worst piece of shit or they got it all together, it's it's all about them. Uh, untreated alcoholism, you know, involves three things: emotional immaturity, hypersensitivity uh, to criticism. And, uh, and what was the third one? Emotional immaturity. Oh, and, uh, and selfishness. And if that, if that person doesn't address that, how can they truly be a good friend? And sometimes the best friend, the best thing you can do as a friend is to say, hey, I got to take a break from us right now because it's too painful for me to be around you. And, if you express it in terms of your feelings, you know, that other person, they, they can't deny what it is that you are feeling. If you come at them like you're being selfish and you're doing this and you're doing that and you're, you know, you're a monster when you're high, you give that person an opportunity to spin their behavior. But when you express it in terms of your feelings, it, it is what it is. And, they may understand, they may not understand, but I tell you, you're not doing them a, a favor 
by enabling their addiction and allowing them to be verbally abusive, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a fine line. It is a gray area. When do you, when is it an okay time? You know, I think a good thing to do would be to say, Hey, if you ever decide you want help or looking to find help, call me. But until then, it's too painful to be around you and your untreated addiction. You're not the same person that you used to before and be before. And, and, and it, it bums me out. But I love you. Hope that helps. Uh, what did I want to read? Oh, I want to mention that uh, one of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you've never been to BetterHelp.com, go check it out. Try doing therapy from the comfort of your own home. You can pick any room you want. You know, Maybe you want to lay, uh, lay on the love seat and spill your guts about your childhood. Maybe you want to sit in a recliner, smoke a pipe. Talk about your fear of the future. Maybe you want to squeeze yourself into the baby crib and talk about your attachment issues. Those are all options when you use BetterHelp.com. Uh, I've been doing it for a couple of years, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of it. So if you want to know more, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. Fill out a questionnaire, and if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they'll pair you up with one, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing and you need to be over 18. And then uh, finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Eric, and he writes, My dad attempted suicide when I was 13 in our garage in the middle of the night. I was the one who found him. What makes it awfulsome was the reason I was able to stop it. I had snuck out earlier to joyride with a couple of friends in someone's older sister's car. We rode around on old country roads, smoking cigarettes with the windows rolled down. When I attempted to sneak back into the house, I heard a car running, so I assumed someone had noticed I was missing and was getting ready to come search for me. I sat there behind the garage waiting for the car to leave so I could slip back in and make up some sleepwalking story to explain my absence. The car never left, and eventually I snuck back in the house. Out of sheer curiosity, I went to the garage to figure out why the car was running, only to find a very confused and very upset father. I was able to get him back into the house and wake up my mother. I still remember how strange his depressed delusions were that night. He kept repeating how he couldn't stand the thought of having to be a used car salesman to support our family, which was odd because he taught high school for 25 years. After years of treatment, including a couple of months of hospitalization, he did recover, and I've never told my family the real reason I was able to save Dad. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> <laughs> I am here with uh, Glenn Meehan, 
And our friend Anthony is sitting in, and Gracie is under the table, threatening to disrupt everything with her uh, excitement about people being over at the house. Glenn, how are you? Oh, I'm happy to be here, Paul. I'm a big fan. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Everybody has to say that when they come on here. I'm a big fan. Uh, it's true. A few people say I, I'm off-put by what you do, and that's usually an awkward interview. Oh. It's a tough way to start. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, where do we begin? You're, you're, uh, you comfortable sharing your age? 60 years old, baby. 60? Just turned 60. You you work in the uh, entertainment industry. Yes. And um, you are gay and you, is it ADD, ADHD? Dyslexia. Dyslexia. Yeah, gay, yeah. 60. So you're- Put it all together. You're YAG. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's a good one. No, but you know, it's funny turning, I, I, I was- I'm sorry. You should be asking the questions. I'm just no. used to this is what I do as a producer. But fifty, the day before I turned sixty was harder than the day that I turned sixty. Why? Just because it was just the last day in my fifties. Yeah. It wasn't long ago that I looked at somebody that was sixty and said, "Man, you're old." And now I am yeah. like, oh, "Wait a minute, I feel like I'm forty-five." It, it's funny. I was watching an interview with uh, Ronnie Wood from the Rolling Stones, and I think he's 70. And he said, it's so bizarre be, because I, I, I feel like I'm still in my 30s uh, mentally. Yeah. You, you just don't. It's it's weird. You feel that way until you go and do something. You yeah, know, and some your knees hurt. And then you're like, exactly. You know, or you hear a song that's popular, <laughs> and you're like, what is that garbage? Oh, my God, I sound like my parents. My favorite thing is going to CVS to get a prescription, and they ask you your birthday. Yes. <laughs> and I'm behind everybody listening to them saying, oh, 1993. And I'm like... Wait a minute! I was like twenty. Oh yeah, <laughs> actually older. I remember having health issues when you were <laughs> when you were born. <laughs> you get up there, you're like 1961, and everybody looks. <laughs> yes, I think I have played hockey with guys that were younger than some of my equipment. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Uh, so, where were you raised? I was raised in Danvers, Massachusetts. In what part of uh, that's Massachusetts? On the North Shore. That's North Shore, ne- next to Salem. And actually, here's the deal, Paul. The witches all came from my town. You see, my town used to be, Danvers used to be um, Salem Village, okay? And then Salem itself was like downtown where the courthouse was. And that's where they would go on trial. But they all lived in Salem Village. And what Danvers did eventually, like in the early 1800s, I don't know when it was. I should know because we had to take town history. They changed their name because they said, we do not want to be associated with the witchcraft era. So now Salem gets all this money and my town doesn't. Wow. <laughs> wow. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but the quote unquote witchery yeah. that they were accused of was probably just indignation that, that these were women that wanted to be autonomous and had an opinion. Yeah. It was all hearsay. It was a bunch of girls getting together and, you know, kind of, they didn't have social media back then. So they kind of created their own app and just went crazy saying that person's a witch and people listened to them. That was the sad part. And across the street from the house I grew up was, um, the Rebecca nurse house. And she was the oldest witch to be hung. And we used to play in her yard and, uh, 
we got out of there awful quick when the sun started going down and it uh it was scary it was scary to look out the window and that was our house because it's a gorgeous piece of property and the sun would set behind it but it was always there was always this hmm. overtone of what happened there even though it was hundreds of years ago there was a cemetery in the back where she was buried and we'd play hide and seek it was a fun time <laughs> wow so what what was the kind of emotional vibe of not only where you grew up but in your house? Well, I, you know, being dyslexic, my sister, I, I am uh, the middle child. Uh, I have an older sister, uh, two years uh, older, and I have a younger sister, six years younger, who I love. I love very dearly. Um, but my older sister was like the smartest kid in school. And then I came along. And everybody assumed that I was going to be like Don Marie, my sister, and I wasn't. And the teachers would let everybody know. And I remember one of the worst things that happened, and this probably happened to you, is that my teacher, I think in second or third grade, would hand out the tests. The one that got the highest, the person, the student that got the highest score would be the first person to get the test. Yes. I was always last. <laughs> and she would fold it over with her two fingers and hand it to me. And everybody would look at me like, there he goes again. And it was it was a struggle because, you know, learning was very difficult for me. Reading when, was very difficult. And when did you realize there was a name for what you struggled with? Uh, when I was in fourth grade. And I, my parents are educators. And thank God for that, because otherwise I would be, you know, pumping gas someplace because that's really, you know, I was told I wasn't going to go to college and they forced the issue and they gave, um, they gave, uh, a lot of tests to me and I ended up in a special school, which it saved me, but it was extremely hard. You know, when all the other kids would walk to school, you're waiting for a taxi to take you to this special school with other people that were like you and and sometimes worse than you and you know we would we would be there for half a day and then they would take us back to school i would have preferred to stay there because going back to school is really hard and um so you split your time between the special yeah. school and the yeah. regular school. Yeah. And part of the fun was I knew every taxi driver in town. <laughs> and they were the ones that taught me about life. Really? You know, oh, yeah. Like sex. And they would just talk to us kids. And Brownie, one of the guys' names was Brownie. and oh, he's, Brownie sounds a little creepy. Yeah, Brownie was. He wore suspenders with a T-shirt, even if it was 30 below. And he smelled. And he just smelled. But he would tell us dirty jokes. Oh, yeah. I knew every cab driver in town. That was my claim to fame. It's like, I, oh, there's Brownie. Oh, there's Paul. You know, it's, it was it was quite a life. And then when I went to, um, I did go to high school, and there was a floor in the high school um, where all of the special needs. I was considered special need. I was literally in the state of Massachusetts, Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I'm I'm handicapped, and. Um, they put us all on this second floor, and it was myself, the dyslexics, the, the behavioral kids. And then what they did in Massachusetts is they mainstreamed the um, mentally challenged. So they were in the room next to me, and here I am in high school. These guys were my friends 
because we would all have second lunch. Having second period lunch was basically all of us misfits. And I sat down. I had lunch with, you know, this uh, Down syndrome, Billy. I had lunch with Wayne, who I knew right up until he died. Um, When I would go back to Massachusetts, he's bagging groceries and comes and gives me a big hug. Um, Pam, they're all dead now because the the, the mentally challenged kids don't. they, They were adults then. Let's put it that way. But. I, you know, I, I had this life and that's kind of, they taught me compassion and they taught me how to, um, not judge in a lot of ways. It was actually, um, your peers did or the teachers, no, the mentally challenged kids I that I had you. lunch with, they were the most loving, non-judgmental, you know, <laughs> like if anybody picked on me, they were going after him. <laughs> That's always nice to have I know. The, the bodyguard. I always needed them in school because yeah. <clears throat> I was a smart-ass kid who, at 16, wasn't even five foot, yeah. 90 pounds wow. yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my bodyguard was seven foot, Down syndrome, you know, belly hanging out his, over a Bruins t-shirt that was stained, and he would go after people. You know, his name was Wayne. And... um yeah, it was it was quite a high school uh, life for me, and one that I hated. But you know, I look back and I learned so much from those those classmates. So that was my life. So your parents were educators, and outside of your struggle uh, with dyslexia, what what was kind of the vibe in your house dealing with emotions and feelings and. Well, it's interesting because I did not get along with my mother even when I think I was four years old. I did not get along with my mother. Um, Still don't um, in a lot of ways. Love her very much. I don't like her. Uh, I tolerate her. Um, I love her more the older I get. Um, My father was non-existent um, just because my mother would put him down a lot. And so as a kid, even at a young age, I didn't respect him. And um, my grandparents, her parents lived next door and she held them on a pedestal. And those were the people they were comparing my father to, especially my grandfather, who was bigger than life. He was a football coach and, you know, he has uh, field houses and gymnasiums in Massachusetts named after him and other buildings. But um, so it wasn't really... A good time. I, I challenged my mother at four years old and five years old, challenged her, challenged her. And eventually I went to live with my grandmother. Now, granted, it was next door. Right. This is my grandfather passed, but I went to live with her and she basically became my mother. And, and were you grateful for that or did that feel like a snub? Uh, I was grateful at the time because I thought I went there because she wanted... Um, a man in the house because her husband died. That wasn't the case. <laughs> I found out as an adult, which was very hard, that my mother couldn't handle me. And that was hard, finding out as an adult, because all that time I thought, I'm happy for it, but I, I'm doing my grandmother yeah. a favor. And, you know, this is, I'm the man of the house and I'm changing the light bulbs and things like that. But that wasn't the case. You know, that brings to mind a, a dynamic that you see a lot is the child that becomes and not that this is necessarily the case with you but the child that becomes parentified by the the parent who has really murky 
boundaries and kind of treats them, you know, as their confidant and et cetera, et cetera. It can be flattering in some way is that kid because you feel like uh, a bit of an adult, but you don't realize until you're older that uh, your innocence was taken in a lot of ways because you were, you had to begin worrying about this person's emotional well-being when it should have been vice versa. You learn to bury your needs. You learn to be who you need to be so that the room uh, is happy or laughing or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, it's the truth. I I think that... um, there was also shame that I had towards my mother. My mother was proud that she was um, a terrible housekeeper. And I mean, she was proud of it. And she was a terrible housekeeper. And so much so before I moved in with my grandmother. And keep in mind, when I say that I moved in, once again, I just want to emphasize that she lived next door. So, right. you know, I could look out the window and there's my family. And a lot of times I would have dinner with my family. But um, would your mom just look at you with hate through the window um, next door? She wouldn't look at me. She really wouldn't. But but I wouldn't have kids come over to play if, if you know, I was supposed to go and play with um, my best friend, Dana Hershey, at the time. Uh, I, he'd say, well, well, let's play at your house. I'll be there at 3. And I was like, okay. And then, of course, I would leave my house at 2.30. So, at, you know, in 10 minutes, I'm at his house saying, let's just play here. Because I had shame of anybody coming into my house. Was it a, like a hoarding thing or just messy? A little bit of hoarding, but she was proud of it. And she, you know, she, she, she thought her mother, if you listened to her, she acted as if her mother was one of these people that had plastic on the couches and you had to take your shoes off, which wasn't the truth. My grandmother just kept a house like anybody should. It was um, a product of my mother's insides. That's really where her, her, her emotions reflected what was going on in the house. Fair to say that she was somebody who was very concerned with what the neighbors thought? She wasn't, no. She was not? No, not not at all. She was proud. She bragged that she, to anybody that she was a bad housewife. <laughs> she didn't really care. But the neighbors didn't come to the house. Yeah, I guess that that, that makes sense. But I, I, I guess what led me to, to think that was that how she held your uh, grandparents on a pedestal and... It was disapproving of of kind of how you were. A lot of times you see that coupled with the person who's very concerned with what the neighbors think. But that's kind of interesting that your mom was just the opposite. I didn't see that. I mean, when I was four, I used to vacuum. Uh, I used to clean the house. I used to throw things out in the refrigerator. Four and five years old, I was doing this. She would go to her uh, room and slam the door and stay there all day as I'm vacuuming. And... That was that hurt because I think a lot of times I still, as an adult, think um, I'm afraid to tell to do something like that. You're going to slam the door on me if if I tell you how I feel, yeah. and so you know I've been in therapy for years, so that's one of the things that came up. So yeah. I can share that with a, you. A, a people pleaser, fair to say, or no? Yeah, but you know I afraid that if that you're going to shut the door on me. And and uh, you know, and that's really what my relationship was like with her. Talk about your dad, if you would. I know it's hard sometimes when there's an absentee parent, and a lot of times it seems to be the dad. Um, that was the case with me growing up, and I have a hard time getting in touch with any emotions around 
my dad. Even after he died, I didn't cry for, for months and I felt like a terrible person. But it's, there, there just wasn't much of a connection there. Yeah. What, talk about. Well, thank you for sharing because my thing, um, my relationship with my dad is the same thing. I, he's, my sisters have a great relationship with him. I don't have a bad relationship with him. I just don't have a relationship with him. My father was uh, an elementary school principal, assistant principal for years. Uh, in fact, when I was in fifth grade, he was mine, but that's a whole other chapter. Um, Dad and I would have uh, breakfast together because for some reason we were, I, I used to wake up early and he had to wake up early to go and be on the playground when everybody arrived to school. So that was my moment with him. And um, we would listen to the radio and... A lot of times, even now I look back, we did, I didn't know what to say to him, even as a young child, because um, I didn't share too much. You know, um, that continued even when I was at my grandmother's house. I would still have breakfast with him because he would make it, and it was the meal he knew how to make. Um, he tried. He did a really great job. He lived in the shadow of my grandfather, which was very difficult. Um, you know, and the sad part is that today uh, he has Alzheimer's, um, and it's extremely difficult for me. To, a, I can't see him. I've done a couple of FaceTimes, which makes it even harder because he's because of the happy. pandemic. You mean? Yeah, so yeah, the pandemic. Thank you. Um, He's he's going through this whole thing with word searching and, and, you know, I get off of my FaceTimes and I just bawl. I just cry just because he's but he's happy. But here's a man that was this educator and, and, and he's, you know, when I can get him to talk, it's actually quite funny because we have a place in Maine and he will I'll bring it up because I try to bring up memories for him. And he will say, well, I'm going there this afternoon. I said, well, how are you going to get there? I'm walking. <laughs> and then he and I just go with him. We have, you know, you have the, it's it's almost like you should be recording this in you know because of it'd be a great script. He's just going to Maine, and he he's in this place where he thinks this is his school. He thinks he's the principal, and he basically sits out in the hallway and kind of tells people to move along and just greets really? people. Oh yeah, and if the phone's ringing, he tries to answer it. If somebody else doesn't ring it, uh, answer it. So he's having a he, he's he's happy. But excuse me, um, it's hard because I'll never have a chance to um, really get to know him because I never did that as a child. My father was an only child. His father was adopted. My grandmother was from Scotland, but I never got to know them. Uh, they lived in New Jersey. My mother's parents were next door and they were the dominant uh, grandparents and they mattered and my mother would put his parents down anyway. So I knew that we weren't really supposed to like his parents, um, as a very young boy. So what would happen would be, I never would ask questions. Um, because he was an only child, we didn't have aunts and uncles and, you know, mm. his, his siblings to kind of fill in the blanks for us. And he just didn't share stuff. So here I am now wishing that I did that. And, and there's a lot of unsolved questions that I'll never know. One of the last things um, that I did with my dad was Christmas before the pandemic started. Um, I, when I go home, I still say home, even though Los Angeles is my home. But when I go back there, I, um, 
we go and see my father, but we go as a group and which is fine. It's nice to be with my sisters. But what I did um, last time was was Christmas Day. And um, my father loves all the Boston teams, especially the Patriots. And uh, they were playing that day. Brady was still a part of the Patriots. And um, I just left. I snuck out on Christmas Day to go over and, and have lunch with him and watch the game with him. And it um, is probably my favorite memory because um, it was just us. And I don't remember ever having that time where it was just us and I really wanted to be there. And we watched the game together, which is um, was wonderful. He he's he's present, you know. The game's over, and he can't tell you who won. Um, but in the moment, he's having a good time. So that was, um, in some ways, closure for me mm -hmm. um, because I kind of knew that maybe there's a chance I might not see him again. Um, although he seems to be going fine, and I hope to go back, you know, soon to see everybody is there anything that you've ever wanted to say to your dad but you just didn't i don't know have the words to say it or you didn't want to bring up an uncomfortable emotion or etc well i think that one of the things that is a very interesting topic that you know because of your work and what you do you probably have explored this a little bit but the relationship between a gay son and a father is almost non-existent, or we don't talk about it. Um, a father represents masculinity, uh, everything that a man should be, and all of a sudden, and and this is this is somebody that you're living with. This is somebody you look up to, and you are four years old, and you know you don't feel that way. You don't know what it is you don't feel. And so a lot of my telling you that my father was non-existent is because I avoided him because sometimes you're afraid that they can see right through that just because he's your dad. And so the best thing to do is just don't talk to him. And, um, I do remember, you know, when it was breakfast and he, this was the year he was my principal um, assistant principal that year. And, um, this guy, Ray, I'm not going to say his last name because I will always remember. And this was fifth grade. Um, I can tell you exactly where I was standing. He called me a faggot and I didn't know what a faggot was at fifth grade in fifth grade. I didn't know what it was, but I also, but I knew it wasn't a good word. And so I, said to my father the next day, he could tell something was upsetting me. I didn't want to go to school. And I said to him that Ray Morrissey, oh, I just said his name. Hello. I don't think he's listening. That's a pretty common name. Yeah, exactly. I think he uh, doesn't like me. I said to my father, well, why do you say that? And I said, well, he called me a bad word. And he said, well, what was the word? And I didn't know what the word, and I told him, and my father put his paper down, and he said, well, that's a bad word, and I don't want you to ever repeat that, and I'm, you know, sorry. And I think that from that point on, fifth grade, my father always knew, because I never had the conversation with my father. I never said, oh, I'm gay. just didn't happen that way. It was my mother being very dominant, just was the one, and then she just went and told him, and he's 
when you know he had no problem with it had, but i think had, he knew had had you come out to your mother my mother um here's the story about that my sister my youngest sister i was just moved to los angeles and uh, she was still in high school but she it was spring break or something in our high school so she came out here with a friend um at the time and i was dating um somebody my first boyfriend and we had a little fight we were having a barbecue and he and i fought and he left you know not for the fight and we were everything was fine but she said you've got a very interesting relationship with michael um do you guys always fight like that and you know that's when i came out to my sister who was like she thought it was so cool she had a gay brother you know she's in high school and she's you know, the six years younger than me made a big difference. And she thought it was really cool. But she also uh, kept a diary. And my mother read her diary. Um, Which that says a lot, too. Yeah. A parent reading yeah. a kid's diary. And that's how my mother found out. And my mother uh, told everybody but me that she knew. Everybody. Because she wanted... My mother's the type of person that, you know, you can say, oh, I broke my leg. And she will say, oh, my God, well, let me tell you, I stubbed my toe. So she will, like everything, she, she, she looked at that as, oh, my God, I want to be the center of tension, but I, through victimhood. Mm-hmm. And so she told everybody, you know, my son's gay. And she just, and, and you know, she didn't tell me. <laughs> so she knew. And um, there was never a coming out talk. It was just like, I know. And, you know, when by the time I talked to her, when I knew she knew, she... Um, still acted like it was she was a victim and who else knows and all that other and you stuff. were what in your 20s oh yeah 20 23 24 so this is in the 80s yes this was probably 80 well 84 85 and when you came out uh or or you know whether you said it publicly or not when you decided to embrace who you were uh, what was that like, and, and what did that look like? Well, the, you know, a lot of people think I came out to Los Angeles to, to be in television. That's partially true, but I came out here to, to come out. Uh, you know, I was going to school in Boston and um, living there at school, even though we were 20 miles away um, north. But I came out here because I knew that I needed to be who I am. And there was really no plan. It was just even maybe on a subconscious level that this is what I needed to do. And what happened around that time, of course, um, is AIDS. And so you are um, coming out during this time was not a good time because the hatred that went along with you being a gay man and the fear that went along with you being a gay man was so frightening and the the literal danger yeah, of having exactly. sex or at least unprotected exactly sex. and so this is what was happening to me and you know i'm in los angeles and you know you're seeing people that are sick uh, you are going to bars and there's condoms there and safe sex pamphlets and so it wasn't this coming out party that other people have had and it was um, very scary. You know, I would go to work. Uh, at the time, I was working on a, a show that is um, 
still on. It was very popular back then and still is um, a news magazine show. And, you know, you would sit there um, and hear people tell AIDS jokes and you would laugh along because I, I, the, the, I, I was still in the closet. I mean, the thing about myself and what's made me a curious person about people is that I control the conversation because I want to do that. So you don't get to ask me if I have a girlfriend or any other question. I learned that at a very young age. If I start saying, oh, my God, Paul, that sweater's beautiful, you're not going to start asking me personal questions. So I learned back in those days, and I still do it. I can walk into a room and decide who I'm going to be. I still do that. I still look around and say, okay, I'm going to be straight, Glenn. Or I'm going to just be myself. And I have shame around that. But that's the truth. And that's also part of the era that I came out in. You never lose that. And, um, you know, that's that's something that has helped me. Um, because I am very curious about everybody. But it's also, there's a lot of um, pain there. Of listening to AIDS jokes and you know, and, and participating in some of that conversation. And the jokes were terrible. I mean, they were just awful. And what is ironic around this time, um, Michael and I didn't last, uh, the one that my sister met, but I fell for a young man um, who was a little older than me that somebody introduced us to, me, uh, to this person who just moved out here from Boston and this person, Jeannie McDonald, who's a wonderful friend. I don't, do you know her? <laughs> no. Uh, we used to walk Lake Hollywood every Saturday. And one day she said to me in one walk, she said, I want, I'm going to bring a friend of mine next week. And I want you to, he's just out here from Boston. He just moved out. He needs friends and he's gay, you know? So he arrived in my yard and my life changed because I saw him walk in and you know, I know it sounds crazy, but I remember looking at him and I realized that's the person. So our walks continued and he would stay, Jeannie would go home and we'd spend Saturday together and, um, then have dinner. Then he would go home and I would go and, you know, try to be intimate with him and he would turn his, his face and just give me the cheek. And I would call Jeannie on Sunday morning saying, he doesn't like me. Yes, he does. Why does he do this? And then I remember we were walking, um, um, one Saturday, uh, just him and I, and he said, I have something to tell you. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, I'm HIV positive. Oh my gosh. He was so emotional telling me and my, you know, talking about your mind going crazy. Cause back then we're talking about late eighties. It was, it was like Russian roulette. Oh, it was, it was, there was nothing, there was nothing you could, um, ex there was no pills you could take. Um, but I cared for this person so much. I really, I loved him, Paul. And I remember the, Monday, I called my doctor who was gay and I talked to him. I said, I'm, can I date a person that's HIV positive? And he said, yes, but you can't be really intimate and you have to be careful and you can't use your tongue kissing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the list went on and on and on. Anybody else would have run and said, oh, 
fuck this. I'm out of here. You know, I stayed because I just cared for him so much. And, um, it was the beginning of about three and a half years of just incredible, incredible, um, intimacy because I learned how to be intimate with him because I couldn't be physical. And it was, it was really the best relationship I ever had until six months before he died, he lost his eyesight and he was an artist. He was an great artist. Our house was one big loft. We lived in Beechwood Canyon and he, um, lost his eyesight and we rushed him to the hospital and that was the beginning of the end and about six months later he was dead and um i was a widower you know at 33 years old wow that is heavy yeah that is heavy and i didn't i thought that was a myth about the kissing or is that just on the off chance somebody had a a cut yeah or a sore. Yeah, Paul, we didn't we didn't know. I mean, my God, you know, if I had a hangnail, I you know, I was supposed to be cautious. Um, it changed every week what you could do and you couldn't do. Um, what what you, what you couldn't do was be intimate, really. And um, but I learned to love him, and he's still one of the greatest loves of my life. I don't like to say soulmate because I'd like right. to think we have a lot. And um, he was he was bigger than life. I. I often think that when he died that I'm living my life for two, myself and him. Um, I still do that. I think about him every day. And um, and it's not this like, oh, whoa, me, I can't move on. I've moved on. I mean, after, after he died, and it's interesting because when he died, just to bring it back to Anthony, I was working with Anthony when this happened and couldn't tell him. And I was very close to Anthony. And, you know, so he's hearing a lot of this for the first time. So I was, um, after he died, I couldn't wait to have sex. I mean, seriously, you, you know, this pent up and that was my way of trying to handle the grief that and drinking and how drugs. Could, how could that go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, it was lots of, I tried and and just to make up for the three and a half years I was with him, and that was just so wrong. And I imagine numbing the sadness that you were oh, yeah. feeling. Yeah, and that was the drugs and alcohol, and um, but it led me to therapy, and that's when I started therapy. And did you hit any kind of uh, a bottom with the drinking and the drugging? Was it something you were able to kind of uh, get away from on your own, or did you have well, to I got get arrested? Yeah, for um, <laughs> it's a good story, but. Uh, Dana Hershey, remember him? I grew up with him, Dana Hershey, one of my best friends growing up. It was his wedding, and I was in the wedding. And so uh, I was the best man, actually. And so uh, it was the night before the wedding. I'm in Danvers, Massachusetts, where the witches are. And I said to Dana, I'm going to rent a van, and we're going to go to the strip club. So this is going to be your bachelor party. I'll drive. I will drive. Everybody else can drink. Well, I'm an alcoholic. And, of course, I drank. I'm just going to have one. Yeah, and that was exactly it. So I get pulled over with a van full (laughs) of drunken guys, 
I mean, just drunk off their ass, leaving the cabaret in Peabody, Massachusetts. I think it's still there. It's a strip club. And um, I end up in jail. And we have to call Dana's father to come and get everybody. Oh, my gosh. And that was that was the bottom in a lot of ways. I just, you know, <laughs> did I give up drinking right away? No. But that's when I started saying I have an issue. And and do you still drink or are you no, abstinent? No. How long has it been? Anymore? I have recently. I went back to it. I was I was sober for 11 years from everything. And then I went back to just drinking wine. And then I did edibles for a little bit. And then a very good friend of mine got sober. And I decided, well, it's time for me to get sober again. I still miss him. I still every once in a while have him. But I don't, I don't want to do it on a regular basis. Do you have any memories that, that you want to share about the intimacy that you had w with uh, Michael? You know, with Jeffrey. I'm oh. sorry. I don't think I ever said to, to, his name was Jeff. Oh, uh, Michael was the first one. Yeah. Jeffrey. Okay. I don't think I ever said his name. Jeff Jones was his name. And, um, He's the one who was HIV. Yeah. Positive. Yeah. The one that died. And one of the reasons I, I want to know, um, a, I think it's interesting, but, uh, B it's the foundation of friendship yeah. and intimacy is something that's so often overlooked and it's so difficult to put first, especially when our hormones are raging, but it is so important in the long-term relationship yeah. to establish that friendship, that trust, all, all of that stuff. And, and I like whenever possible um, to, to hear moments like that. Well, believe it or not, one of the most intimate moments ever, ever I experienced with him. I mean, we're talking about, you know, I've had five relationships since then. But when he lost his eyesight, you know, we used to go to bed like any couple and read and, you know, sometimes have television um, on. But we chose not to have a TV in the bedroom, which was really wise. So we would both read. So when he lost his eyesight, I would read to him. And that right there was the most intimate moment in any relationships I've ever had. And we, I would read a chapter of night. Um, David Levitt's book, Lost Languages of Cranes, was probably the first book that I remember uh, reading to him. And first of all, it's kind of funny. You haven't lived until you've had a dyslexic read you a book at night. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> While one of you is dying from AIDS. <laughs> exactly. You know, you got to laugh because there were certain words that I couldn't say, pronounce, but it was like fuck it. He can't see it. So I'd skip over. <laughs> and I remember that's how I was with my nieces and nephews. When I read to them, I was like, ah, I don't want to, you know, just make up words. I did a little bit of that with Jeff, but I mean, Paul, that was like, it, it was just beautiful. I, I look back at that and think how um, powerful that was. And, and that was our intimate moment. And, and that's one of the most beautiful things I've, I've heard in the 10 years of doing this podcast. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was beautiful. And the other thing that I had to do is he did have a shunt. We had nurses there all the time during the week, but it was me on the weekends. And he um, he had this shunt that every day had a it was like this football thing and it, to, to be hooked up to for an hour. And I used to have to do that and clean it out um, on the weekends. And I hate blood. 
but you know, it taught me that you do what you do for the, somebody you love. And I would just get through it. And it was intimate in so many ways. Um, once again, he couldn't see me like making faces and, you know, and making a mistake with the needle, <laughs> you know, he, 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 the needle didn't go in him. The needle went into this punctured football thing, but, um, but that was an intimate moment. You know, I really learned intimacy and, um, which was beautiful. It really was. And I miss him. I miss him every day. I miss that relationship. You know, I'm single right now. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm not somebody that like says, Oh, I, I've got a date. I got a date. I missed intimacy. I think what comes with age is you start using words like I'm looking for a best friend, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> companionship, you know, all that stuff that you used to hear older people say, you're like, Oh, fuck. I'm just looking for somebody I want to fuck, you know, right. Right. <laughs> but I'm looking for a best friend and companionship. Somebody I can read to again. But yeah, I mean, it really is important. And thank you for sharing that moment. I mean, what a personal um, and beautiful moment. It, it never ceases to amaze me how the worst of circumstances can have the most beautiful moments. You know, I always think of the moments that Viktor Frankl describes oh. in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, mm -hmm. where one starving person uh, in the Holocaust would give somebody who was starving a bit more their only crust of bread or the them singing songs at, at night. Such a great book. You know, the interesting thing that I will tell you, there's a little um, postscript to this story, which is I don't really share with too many people. Anthony knows his story, but um, years later, uh, when I say years, it was only like 10 years after he died. I had the opportunity to go and work at Harpo in um, Oprah's company in Chicago. She was doing uh, the Rosie show, which was the remake of Rosie O'Donnell. Uh, which people didn't even realize it was on the air because it didn't last that long. But I was supervising producer. And um, he, Jeffrey, grew up in Aurora, Illinois. Western suburb. Yeah. And um, so it was close to Chicago. I took the job because, um, A, you know, you're not going to turn down Oprah. And it was a lot of money. But B, I he used to talk about Chicago and the Chicago he knew. And I never had a chance to go and kind of walk in his footsteps. So I took it. And, uh, of course, my first weekend there, I call his parents. And stranger answers. I didn't know who it was. And they say, oh, you know, they put Jeffrey's mother on, on Jeanette. And I just said, you know, I'd like to come out and see you. It's Glenn. And, oh, come on out anytime. Uh, and then she hands me the, the phone to the guy and he gives me the address because they moved. And so that was on a Saturday. The next day was Sunday and I drive out and I got flowers and all that stuff. And I arrive at the house and this guy that answers the phone um, answers the door and uh, he's in kind of scrubs. And I was like, oh, hi, I'm, I don't know if I have the right house. Oh, yeah, you have the right house. You know, they're in the living room. And I walk into the living room and... Um, Mrs. Jones, Jeff's mother is sitting there just watching TV and Jeff's father is, um, sleeping in this chair. And so she gives me a hug and she said, how have you been? And it was just 
something about it, Paul, where you're like, she's just asking me these questions like she doesn't know me. But we haven't seen anybody, seen each other since the funeral. So that's okay. And um, she kind of remembers me and, you know, I have to remind her of certain things and I prompt her. And then Mr. Jones wakes up and she said uh, to him, oh, you remember Glenn, Jeffrey's partner. And he said, I didn't know my son was a lawyer. <laughs> and I thought, oh, he's being funny because he was a very funny man, still was. But then suddenly I realize what's going on here. They both have Alzheimer's. Nobody told me. And so I'm sitting there and then I start asking him questions because I could see it was his birthday. There was a banner up that said, happy birthday, dad. And I said, oh, when was your birthday? And he said, last weekend, you should have been here because Jeff was here. And then at the moment I decided, um, to go with it, to go with, For one hour, Jeff Jones was alive, 10 years after his death. And we had the greatest time talking about him. Oh, he made me a card. He did this. Oh, telling me stories of his childhood that I never heard before. And it was the most beautiful moment. And the interesting thing was having these two diseases collide. AIDS, HIV, with Alzheimer's. They collided that afternoon, and it was a beautiful thing. And I'll never forget that. And the next day, um, Jeffrey's sister calls and said, you needed, you should have called me first. And I said, oh, Casey, don't worry about it. I, I'm sorry. She goes, well, I'm sorry. And I, I said, sorry for what? It was a wonderful afternoon. Well, you should have known. And I said, no, that's okay. It was probably better I didn't. Because I wouldn't have had that experience. Wow. But, yeah. That was heavy. It was beautiful. I think I'd like to see a buddy cop show called Alzheimer AIDS. <laughs> I don't know what the arc of the season would look like, but I just like the idea yeah. of the two of them introducing <laughs> themselves. Well, Anthony and I can write it. Uh, it's really, it's pretty amazing. Um, wow. Yeah. That was, yeah. So where, where are you at today? What are the struggles today that occupy your, your mind? Financial, but that's another story. That's not what we're here to talk about um, in my mind. I think it's hard getting older in Hollywood. And, and um, as you can see, I... Uh, I don't want to retire. I love, I feel more creative today than ever. I have a wonderful producing partner, Anthony, and um, we have some amazing stuff. Uh, I like working with the younger people because they just don't see me as this older person. I, I'm doing a project with my goddaughter who's 22, <laughs> and people are amazed when we go on Skypes and they, or, or Zooms, and they see me thinking they're going to see another 
you know, 58-year-old woman sitting next to me saying, oh, yeah, we got a TV show for you. Um, I think the age thing, um, but I don't feel... I try not to use it, but every once in a while, you you know it's happening. You know that the phone stops ringing a little bit. You're replaced. You got to go and make your own life. You got to you know show them. Look, you know I know how to do TV. Anthony knows how to do TV. You know you've got these kids that don't know how to do TV that we're pitching to, and it's it's a challenge, but. That's big. I'd like to have a, a best friend, a companion. Um, mm-hmm. I'm working on that. Um, I think I'm settled in my ways. I think that comes from age a little bit. Uh, I did have a 10-year relationship after Jeff and really haven't had anybody since then. Um, and that was probably five years ago. But that's, I feel fine. That was a lot of it was by choice. Um, financially, it's scary to... You know, I go on Facebook and I'm seeing these classmates, you know, that I went to school with, you know, and they're down in Florida. I'm like, what the hell are they doing in Florida? You know, it's 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 not spring break. And, and then I'm like, shit, they live down there. They're retired. They're retired. You know, right. and I'm seeing other people holding little kids. And I'm like, oh, my God, who is that? Oh, it's their grandchild. And then you wake up and you're like, oh, my God, I went to school with that person. You know, and, and that's the challenge. The challenge for me is I feel like I'm racing against the clock a little mm-hmm. bit, um, which makes me really impatient sometimes. And I'm a Buddhist, so that really has helped save my life. And practicing patience is one of the virtues that we talk about a lot. But you, there is this sense of we got to sell, we got to sell, we got to sell. Yeah. Because there's still so much I want to do. So much I want to see, so much I want to um, take on. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I just want to make sure that those opportunities are always there. Well, buddy, thank you for coming by and, and sharing your story and those uh, memories of uh, Jeff. Jeff. I didn't know whether to call him Jeff or Jeffrey. No, it was Jeffrey, actually. Um. Yeah, those are going to stay with me for a a, a, yeah. a long time, and I think the the listeners as well. Uh, those are like two little movies that uh, yeah you showed yeah, and I appreciate you you sharing. Well, that. thank you. I didn't know I was going to go there, but you have something about you that is so there's a connection. And I'm so grateful. That. I'm seeing that connection and experiencing that. You know, Anthony kept saying you need to experience this because I heard him on, uh, and I thought. It, he was terrific, and but you were great with him, but now I really see it, so thank you. I appreciate it. I really, really love talking to him. Such a such an easy guy to to talk to and to and to listen to. And uh oh man, that story about reading to his partner. Wow. So powerful. Let's dive into some surveys. If you guys haven't been to the website yet to fill out surveys, there's about a dozen different surveys you can fill out that I think are a really important part of this podcast, letting us know what your experiences are, because, you know, we can only hear so many stories from uh, people who are listeners, especially when they're they're not anonymous. Occasionally we have the anonymous guest, but I don't know, when people fill out these surveys anonymously, they really let go of uh, the stuff that 
I think we, we hold on to that can often drag us down. Anyway, enough of my yakking. This is from the love survey filled out by Emily the Strange, and she writes, I love the chirping noise my cat makes when she's excited to see me. I can't imagine a, a cat making a chirping noise. I love hot baths that leave me pink-faced and doe-eyed. I hope nobody shoots you when they see that you're doe-eyed. Kick down your bathroom door. Put, strap you to the, the hood of their pickup. Uh, I do love a, a, a hot bath. Sometimes sometimes you make it so hot that when you get out, you have trouble standing up. You almost collapse. I should mention also uh, shooting heroin and doing that. That might be the part that's making the legs wobbly. I love the dizzying relief I get from completing a task I've been avoiding for weeks. Oh, that's a good one. I love watching cartoons now that I finally feel safe to be a kid. I'm 30. Better late than never. Those are awesome. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, I do love when you find a cartoon that interests you as an adult. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself hopelessly distracted. He identifies as bisexual. He's in his 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. He writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, my grandfather molested me as a boy. He was tickling me once and reached in my pants and grabbed my testicles. I started laughing because I didn't know what he was doing, so he continued for a minute or so. I know it's not a big deal, but it's weird. Yes, it is a big deal. Uh, I never understood why he did this, and I have trust issues because of it. I think that answers any question about, you know, does this count as sexual abuse or not? It's it's clearly affected you as I think it would anybody. And, uh, yeah, fuck. Uh, he's been physically and emotionally abused. Any positive experiences with abusers? Uh, he's my dad and I love him, but I have some serious resentment towards him that I don't act on. Darkest thoughts that I'm not worth anyone's time and I'm a weirdo that should probably just be dead. Darkest Secrets, I had sex with a dog when I was 18. By the way, that is so much more common than, than people think it is, uh, especially for you know people that are, are teenagers or, or kids. And, um, and let's, just be, let's just be grateful that the dog had the decency to wait until you were 18 before he hooked up with you. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being commanded to have sex, choking, being told what to do. Sharing that makes me feel less like a man and it makes me feel uncomfortable. It's still hot though. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I feel like I'm broken and nothing I do works out in the end. I can't tell anyone because I'm so afraid I'll fail at everything I'm trying and that no one really cares about my problems. What, if anything, do you wish for? To be successful and marry my boyfriend without having to worry I can pay the bills or not. Have you shared these things with others? No, I isolate myself from my friends and family when things are going poorly. I don't want to burden them. How do you feel after writing these things down? Sad. I have a lot of issues that I pack away on a daily basis, and I need to deal with them. I think you said it all. I need to deal with them. And I think that starts with opening up. But it, it 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 really helps to find out who is safe to open up to. And sometimes we find that by trial and error. But you 
you are worthy of compassion and love and attention, as is anybody who is listening right now. And I know as much as anybody else how hard it is when we're wounded and confused and drained by our issues and demons, how hard it is to pick up the phone and try to put into words what it is we're feeling or thinking or worried about. But it is the the way out of the darkness, you know, as corny as it sounds, the way out of the darkness is to shine a light on it. And it starts by opening up with somebody, whether it's a therapist or a, a close friend or um, somebody in a support group. Yeah. But thank you for sharing that. This is from the love survey filled out by Finally Friday. And they write, I love when I'm lucky enough to be in the passenger seat while my best friend is driving. I love staring out the window at the mountain tree lines of my home state of Vermont. The lack of power lines or buildings always gives a full view of the sky. I love just about reaching home when we put on a song that's so good that we have to drive past the house to let it finish, especially when it's an instrumental song full of emotions. I feel myself sinking into the moment. My mind starts to drift, like wondering if there is a God up there just filtering through souls here and there as they come and go just feeling the beautiful, humble intensity of what it feels like to be alive. Wow, that is beautiful. Wow, thank you for that. It's like a little poem. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences, filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Zombie. And she was admitted. It was her second admission. Uh, her first one, uh, she said, was helpful in many ways. But she wants to share about her. Uh, I'm sorry, got it backwards. This was she's going to share about her first experience. Her second one was helpful. And uh, she writes, "We did nothing all day. The nurses and the doctors uh, were rude and treated us like we were a bunch of lying, annoying, and hopeless creatures." Uh, I don't know if I mentioned she was 17 when this happened. One of the girls was only 12, and she took a shine to me. First, she acted all tough, bragging about her self-harm and telling me all about her boyfriends. Uh, one day, she asked me if I wanted to know a secret. She took me to her room and shyly got a guitar from under her bed. She told me she used to be able to play the guitar really well, but all the meds she'd been fed had been affecting... Uh, eating away at her brain so much that she'd forgotten all the songs she used to know, except one. When she talked to me, I could suddenly see her as the sad, sad child she really was. Suddenly, she dropped the act, and I could see that she was only 12 years old. I could see this shy smile and awkward laughter of a little girl. She then asked me if I wanted to hear the one song she still knew. She was thrilled when I told her I was familiar with the song Zombie by the Cranberries. She played it for me, and she kept forgetting the words and the chords, but she kept going as I was smiling and nodding at her encouragingly. When she looked at me then, I could see all the innocence and loneliness and childlike longing for affection in her eyes. It was one of the saddest moments in my life, and I loved her so much there and then. The next day, my mom came to visit me, and we agreed that, as the hospital was offering zero therapy, there was no point in me staying. Upon leaving, the head psychiatrist told me he thought I was bipolar. I'm not, because all the girls who cut themselves were. I hugged the girls goodbye after spending three days with them. They had no parents or other caregivers to come and take them home anytime soon. I wanted so badly to take them with me. 
I still think about that beautiful 12-year-old girl with her guitar looking at me wide-eyed all the time. Even though it's been eight years, it hurts so much to wonder where she might be today. Wow. Wow. Man, what a picture you painted. Thank you for that. And maybe that maybe that girl is recovering. Maybe she found something that's that's helping her. I mean I don't know. <laughs> Look at me wanting to put a positive spin on it so nobody has to experience a sad emotion listening to this. Fucking people pleasing ass. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Alberta. She identifies as pansexual. She's 19. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I would say, at the very least, uh, be described as that. Uh, She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, At 14, she was raped by a man she thought was her friend. Uh, He was 26. Um... She's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, She writes, I was a competitive athlete through most of my teenage years. I had straight A's, and I was considered to be the most beautiful and successful daughter of my father. I was a national-level competitor, and my life was great until I did not win a medal one tournament. My father did not even look at me. Instead, he told me my athletic ability was the only thing that he liked about me, that I was a disappointment and a shame to the family. So I continued to train my hardest and tried to make him proud. I ended up having a partial tear in my ACL, but I continued to train and play through the pain. I never heard how proud he was of me, just that I was disgusting to look at, that I was fat and I looked like a dyke. Jokes on him is I am hella fucking queer. He told me that I was worthless and a waste of space. I was kicked out of my house several times for not getting good enough grades and for not winning in competitions. When my room was not clean enough, he would grab me by the hair and throw me down the stairs. He would grab my arms and knees so hard that he would leave bruises that lasted for weeks. When I became severely depressed, I began to self-harm. It was a release for me, and I became severely addicted, but soon it was not enough. I attempted to kill myself, and when my mom found me, she called an ambulance. I was on the stretcher, sobbing and drifting in and out of consciousness. I was crying for them to both let me die and for my father. I was saying how sorry I was. I was screaming for his approval. He came to the hospital once during the month and a half that I was there. He told me, you can't do anything right, can you? You're even a failure at killing yourself. Today, if that were in a movie, I would say no father could be that cold, that cruel. Fuck. Today, it's been about two years since I have seen him. And to this date, I still have these thoughts haunting me. I struggle with depression and anxiety, eating disorders, self-harm, and severe body dysmorphia. I attend therapy regularly and am medicated, but some days I can just hear him screaming at me. I still feel worthless and like I could have been better and that I can still achieve perfection. Any positive experiences with the abusers? All the moments of him taking me to work functions and introducing me to his co-workers and telling them all my achievements and how proud he was that I was his daughter. Those moments always made me feel like all my suffering and hard work paid off. To this day, I still crave his approval, but he wants nothing to do with me. It is good 
that he doesn't want contact with you because he is a sick, sick fuck. And, you know, it's such a sadly good example of the narcissistic parent that sees the child as an extension of themselves and, you know, showing you off while berating you in private. Um, oh, I'm so sorry you had to experience that. Darkest thoughts. I want, I want to be in an abusive relationship. I want to be beaten and hurt. I feel comfortable in those relationships. I want to be the woman on the news who has been killed by her spouse. Darkest secrets. I had sex with a man in his 60s, and I hated every second of it. He was disgusting to me, but I felt wanted and important, and like I could finally have something that I am good at, so I continued the sexual relationship with him for four months. He had a wife and three grandkids. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to be raped. I want my partner to take a knife and cut me up so badly and leave physical scars to match my emotional ones. To share this is kind of odd. I feel vulnerable and that because I have these fantasies that my past experiences are not considered abuse or rape. That because I want it, that must mean I really wanted it then. I feel invalidated by my own fantasies. What you're experiencing is such a common byproduct of trauma. Fantasies has are, is no indication of your morality or what you want in reality. You know, sexual fantasies are our brain's way of trying to redo our trauma but control it. To have it, you know, just by the very act of reimagining a trauma and sexualizing it is you, your way of trying to erase it, but to have control this time around. That's, that's my opinion. And I think if you read a lot of books about uh, sexual trauma, you'll, you'll find that to be the case. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to be able to tell someone that I love them. After my parents' divorce when I was 16, I never told anyone other than my mother and grandmother that I love them. I am scared that they will leave me and I won't be able to handle the heartbreak. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to feel anything other than this empty pit inside my stomach. I want to feel like I matter. You would be such an important and valuable member of a support group. You clearly have a big heart and you're sensitive and you would find that you're not alone in your pain that other people have walked through similar emotions that you're walking through and after a while in the support group you could be that inspiration for other people to keep going I really really encourage you Have you shared these things with others? I've shared all of this with my last therapist. When I told her how I was raped, she asked if I woke up with my underwear on, and I said yes. She told me that it probably did not happen. She has told me that I am fine because I have my, my life together, even when I tell her that I want to fall apart. That's, that does... That does not sound like a good therapist. You know, I I am not a licensed therapist, so I could be wrong, but that sounds like a really sketchy response 
to the stuff that you shared. Um, I don't know. I think it would be worth finding another therapist and getting another perspective on what you went through and what you're currently going through. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like a weight has been lifted. That is music to my ears. I love when I read one of these surveys and somebody feels better by the end after putting into words what is so hard to say or even think about. And that's why I think support groups are so great. This is a happy moment filled out by Eric. And he writes, I was driving home with my daughter and fiance after a mid-morning trip to our favorite neighborhood to shop in. In this neighborhood of Madison, there are thrift stores and a co-op and a generally cool vibe in the area. I've always been drawn to places like this. I have a challenging relationship with my fiance. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I got sober with the 12 steps and a great local sponsorship family. And my fiance, fiance, my fiance has an anxiety disorder and has pretty severe mood swings since her traumatic brain injury. We're new parents and we are learning to live with the chaos that surrounded us for most of our relationship. The weather was perfect for Wisconsin spring, 60 degrees and a clear sky. On the drive home, the song Feathered Indian by Tyler Childress came on. And I just looked at my girls with pure joy. I felt proud and content with my place in life. I felt love. And that to me is such a great example of the place that we can get to emotionally if we join with a community of other people who are like-minded, who have similar experiences or feelings and want to get better, other seekers. Thank you for that. And then finally, this is a list of loves from somebody who calls themselves Anemic BB. And they write, I love kissing the soft head of the baby I nanny when she makes eye contact with me and smiles and grabs my hair. I love heating up her ice cubes of frozen baby food and watching them melt in the pan. I love having realizations about my upbringing and mental health, making my therapist laugh, friends who validate my emotions. I love settling down with a coffee in the morning, sinking into my girlfriend's arms and finding the perfect fit, the warmth of our bed and our big blankets, when my girlfriend's cat stretches and yawns, when my dog stretches and yawns or falls asleep on me. I love heated blankets. I love when you get blood work and something shows up as wrong, finally an answer. I love showers and putting products in my hair when my wavy, curly hair does what I want it to. I love getting a new special interest, being obsessed with something. I love that moment in the surgery room right before you get knocked out with the drugs. The doctor tells me to think about something nice so I have good dreams. It makes me feel cozy. I love having nothing planned for a day, maybe doing some errands, laying around, making breakfast. I love making my girlfriend laugh her crinkly nose when she smiles, her soft, kind brown eyes, how tall and strong she is, how she makes dinner and packs lunches for me because my eating disorder makes it hard for me to think about food, how she communicates and talks about her feelings even though it's difficult, how warm and safe her arms are, how she doesn't judge me for the things I feel shame about, when we go out for coffee and play bananagrams, 
When we'd only been dating for a month, she came to my, quote, family meeting at the mental hospital and she took notes. How she said to me once, I don't mind spending money on you because it feels like I'm investing in my future. How silly she is when she's drunk or high. How silly she is in general. How I feel the safest when I'm with her. How healing it is to have someone who respects my boundaries, who listens to the word no. I love how playful we are. And I love how she's so engaged and outgoing with my family and friends and how she accepts me and all my past trauma. Wow. Wow. Fuck. Fuck. That's all I can say. Fuck, those were good. Thank you for those. And thank you guys for listening. And uh, those of you that support the podcast, um, thank you for your support, whether it's through a kind email or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or making a donation, which you can do at the website, Uh, or filling out a survey. I super appreciate it. Just wrap it up, Paul. You're losing steam, buddy. Anyway, if you're out there and you're struggling, you are not alone, and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.